Today's sponsor is Audible.com, which has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free audiobook of your choice at audible.com slash decode. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the leading bidder in the effort to buy Yahoo, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas and how they're changing the world we live in. Today in the red chair, we have someone I have known for a very long time. I feel rather old. I think we've known each other for 20 years. We have Hadi Partovi, the CEO and co-founder of Code.org, a nonprofit that wants more people to be learning computer science, which has become a big deal lately. Just mentioned in the President's State of the Union address and also some initiatives he's announced recently. Its goal is to make learning programming as normal a part of education as learning how to spell or do math. Welcome, Hadi. Thank you so much, Kara, for having so, me on the show. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but I want people to get an idea of your background. You didn't, this is something you came to more recently, but you've been a long time. I met you when you were doing a music thing for Facebook, correct? Or before that, even before that at Microsoft. So explain a little bit of your background so people have a sense of where you came from. Sure. You know, I've been working as a tech entrepreneur for about 20 years, or really as a technologist. I grew up uh, learning to code when I was young. From uh, where? Where was that? So I actually have an interesting story about how I learned. I grew up with my brother in Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, and You're identical twins. Yeah, we're identical twins. Mm-hmm. And when we were six years old, the country broke into a revolution and then war with uh, the neighboring country of Iraq. We uh, remember that in America. We do. Yeah, I remember it because literally our, our neighborhood was right next to the TV station. So we were actually a target of bombing raids pretty mm-hmm. much every night. So we'd spend most of our nights in the basement just waiting for the bombing to stop. And during that, you know, it was just not a great place to grow up. And my life changed when my dad brought home a Commodore 64 that he had gone to Italy and imported into the country. And he said, this, you know, here's a computer. It doesn't have any games on it, but here's a book. And if you teach yourself how to code, you can make your own games. And so my life, by the time I came to the United States, we really didn't have nothing else that was fun to do in that country. And by Mm -hmm. the time I was in this country, you know, my friends would be busing tables or, or working at gas stations during their summer jobs in high school. And I was working at MIT or at other tech companies. So this is in Boston, in Boston itself. What were you doing? Were you a 14-year-old working at companies or what? Yeah, I, I'm actually not sure it was legal. We were just getting paid, but we were great programmers. And so we could, you know. What were you programming at the time? The first program I had to do was actually for an MIT research lab to make a word processor to help them submit a grant application to the NIH. And what were you programming language? What was the programming language? Uh, that was in C. Oh, okay. And in fact, I had to learn C for that summer job, uh, which was pretty funny. Uh, but it's actually one of the things you, you recognize. Anybody who's done computer programming knows that it's not about learning one language. It's learning about how this stuff even works, and then you learn the language for the particular job. So what made you interested in it? What, just because your father brought that to you? Because it takes a certain kind of interest. Your father wasn't a programmer. What did he do? My father was a physicist, mm-hmm. uh, and he actually started a tech university, the main technology university of and your mom? Iran. Uh, my mom was a computer science major, actually, ah, but so she that's... actually, you know, she hadn't worked for many years because of the Iranian Revolution. And so, what got you into it? Was it them, or what, what was the beginning? Because a lot of this is about spark. Like, where does the spark come from? So, getting into computer programming was for sure because of my dad, mm-hmm. and then once I came to the United States, just the tech industry was just this land of opportunity. And I ended up working at Microsoft and then doing right. multiple startups. Explain Microsoft. So you were there doing, you sold your company. 
Um, so the first time I joined Microsoft actually was out of college, ah. and I uh, ended up leading program management for the Internet Explorer team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was during the good years of Internet Explorer, so right. through Internet When they were Explorer. killing off Netscape, right, those years? Correct, yeah. Okay. You, you know, some might say those weren't good years, but at least the product at that time was hailed by all the reviewers, including by Walt, mm-hmm. uh, as the best browser. And, you know, at least my job was delivering a better, faster, lighter weight cleaner browser, and in fact, one that better supported all the web standards. Mm -hmm. So I was extremely proud of my work through IE5 because we were all of those things. Uh, And it's been kind of a sad thing to watch Internet Explorer fade out of existence. So you left Microsoft and started a company, correct? Uh, Yeah, I joined Mike McHugh and Angus Davis. Who's doing Flipboard now. Yeah. Back then, the company we did together was Tell Me Networks, which was then bought by Microsoft. And that was a phone. Yeah, it had to do with voice recognition via the phone, but this was way before the days of things like Siri. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was basically you'd call a phone number and voice recognition when you're on a phone call. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, that was... You know, in 1999, 2000, right. was before and it was tell me, tell me this, tell me that. So it was, the, it was the begin. That was always being worked on by somebody at some point. The voice rate is still, it's still not quite there, which is interesting. Yep. But that technology was bought by Microsoft and is now the foundation of Cortana now mm-hmm. and their voice recognition. So you went efforts. back. Then you went back after you sold a company to them. Yeah, then I ran uh, different groups within MSN. Uh, the, the biggest job I had there was running the entire MSN portal and all the content areas. And then I, I, after that, I joined my twin brother to run I Like, mm-hmm. which was a music discovery social network. But we became the, the fastest growing app on the Facebook platform in the very early days of the yeah. Facebook platform. You were a little early. Planes are covered with the bodies of pioneers. And yes. that, I remember a party you threw for Mark Zuckerberg in very early days. Who did you have there? You had the guy... It was in a backyard of Mark. Oh yeah, Blondin's we had a house. band. Third Eye Blind, I think, was, That's right. was playing yeah. music. Yeah, for, for and you were party. thanking him, and it was like you know there were a bunch of hot apps on Facebook, but Facebook was still pretty small. It still wasn't really. Yeah, Facebook had just crossed about twenty-five million users, mm-hmm. uh, and we were the, one of the fastest-growing apps, and we were the leading music. And, thing and what and, happened there? You know, I would say a number of things happened. Facebook has gone through a discovery process of figuring out what it wanted to do as a platform. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, every feature that we built stuff on was was yeah. removed from the platform and replaced with something else, and that wasn't easy for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, the music industry viewed our presumed success. We hadn't made any money yet, but we were getting a lot of attention, mm-hmm. and they viewed that as a threat. So between the changing platform and the music industry wanting to get a piece of the action, plus the recession hitting at the, yeah. at, at the same time, yeah. uh, you know, I like was basically squeaked its way out into an aqua hire by, by MySpace, which mm-hmm. was frankly oh, jumping wow. from the frying pan straight into the fire. <laughs> Wow, that's a choice, huh? Yeah. Like everything, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, you know, it was a really unusual time. I remember like Zynga, all the others were, were coming in. So you go to MySpace, you were there. I remember seeing you there and then left. Many people left MySpace. And what did you do after that? How did you get interested in this? Because you started investing with your brother is also a big investor. What were you hoping to do another startup and why didn't you? Yeah, so we'd been investing for almost 10 years before mm-hmm. that. Uh, and I realized... I was just doing much better as an angel investor than I could have imagined. You know, right. we'd been early in, in Facebook and Dropbox, mm-hmm. and we'd also been investors in Zappos or Airbnb. These companies are doing super well. Mm-hmm. And I realized starting another startup to make money uh, wasn't motivating for me. Right. Uh, and in fact, if I wanted to make money, I'd focus on my angel investing. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't feel to me like something I wanted to do full time. Uh, and I really want to make an impact on the world. And what brought you to this? And then we're going to talk a little about what you're doing exactly in the next segment. But what brought you to Was it that you suddenly woke up one morning and said, everyone must code? or Because it's not, a, it's not a non-controversial discussion going on on this issue. I've always, not always, but you know, since I graduated from college, I remember thinking, 
how great this field was that I was learning and how many doors it's opened for me uh, mm-hmm. just as an immigrant mm-hmm. and wondering why isn't that there aren't more people doing this? Why is it so hard to hire great engineers? Why aren't people just jumping over themselves to learn this field because of how much money you can make, how much impact you can have? How well, the much delta you can is huge, the, world. the amount of jobs available and the amount of programmers available. Yeah, there's a huge delta. The Bureau of Labor Statistics predicts 1 million open jobs just in this field. If you look at the salaries, the average computer science degree is worth 40% more than an average college degree. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, the delta is as much as going to college versus high school. The same delta is going into but computer what, so, science so versus it, college. It was a sensible thing for you, but what else? Is there something that happened that you decided, I must be the Johnny Appleseed of coding or something? Um, so there actually is a moment where I kind of woke up with a spark of passion. You know, I'd thought about this field for a while, and I always, for at least four or five years, I thought, you know, that one could make a video of some of the best people in computer science to stir attention to the space. And I thought mm-hmm. maybe I'd make that video. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'd always envisioned it as a video featuring people like Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs mm-hmm. talking about the field. Mm-hmm. And the day that Steve Jobs died, I remember actively thinking, damn it, one of the people I wanted in this video is no longer even available. And I'm here just sitting You're not on my available. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can't film him anymore. Right, no. And I, I just remember thinking... I'm sitting here doing nothing, like enjoying my time as an angel investor, but what is my real, you know, what's my footprint going to be in the world? Meaning. And, you were looking for meaning. Correct. And Steve Jobs was, I think, 12 or 13 years older than me. And I thought, if, if I die in 13 years, what will I look back on? So and, you thought this was a very important thing, that people get these skills, that it becomes as basic as math and spelling and, and as part of an education curriculum. Absolutely. And my view of it is not just because of the job opportunities, but because if you look around our world, everything is turned upside down by technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, we don't teach biology or chemistry to kids in school because they're going to become surgeons or chemists. Mm-hmm. We teach them about photosynthesis and about, you know, water is H2O or how light bulbs work just to understand the world around us. Yeah, I still haven't used any of this, that knowledge yet. Yeah, you don't use any of it. Yeah. But you do, on, on a day-to-day basis, use things like public cre- key encryption. Mm-hmm. And the average American has absolutely no idea what that is, although every time they visit a website, that's happening. Why is that? Why is that not looked upon, even though it's the one area of growth that the United States has seen, has been a leadership position in? And now, of course, China and India and others are graduating computer science people like crazy. They just do it as a matter of course, as part of their country's future. Why, why hasn't that happened? So I think the main reason it hasn't happened is simply inertia. Uh, and in fact, the interest in it and the demand for it is, has peaked, but it just takes time to change public schools. All right, we're going to talk more about what that is and what has to be done to do that. But first, if you're always on the go like myself and don't have time to sit down and read, Audible.com is a great source to be able to catch up on the latest bestsellers. Listen to all on the road or at the gym. Audible.com is a leading provider of premium digital spoken audio information and entertainment on the Internet. Audible content includes more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Audible carries audiobooks in every genre imaginable, business, classics, history, and self-development, just to name a few. Hadi, what book should I listen to next? I ask all the guests this sure, important question. Sure, a great question. book I read on the flight here actually is, you know, if you've read Art of War, mm-hmm. there's a book called The War of Art. Ah. Uh, and I would, <laughs> It's a short book, yeah. uh, and it's basically about what it takes to get over sort of writer's block, whether you're a writer or a creator or, you know, any kind of endeavor where sort of procrastination or fear stops. What, you what was the tip? I never stop wanting to write. That's interesting. But what was the tip? I wish I had writer's um, block. I don't know if I could summarize it as one thing, but it basically... 
you know, it's a book about convincing you to go all in and to sort of forsake the natural hesitation you have and to recognize that that natural hesitation mm -hmm. is something we all have. And right. it's actually kind of connects to what I'm doing actually in my work where I decided I'm going to go all in on something and make it my mission. Sure. Okay. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice, The War of Art, and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash decode and choose from over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash decode. That's audible.com slash decode and get started today. We're here talking with Hadi Partovi, who is running Code.org, which is trying to get people to code. Pretty simple goal. And we've been talking about how he got to doing this. And one of the things that's interesting is how much effort it takes for something that seems sensible. Although, And there's a lot of controversy around it. People who want to do more art and music feel like it gets pushed out. The kids are spending too much time doing not creative stuff that it'll push them into like drones, essentially. Can you address that first before we talk about how you get to people to get these skills? Sure. Uh, the first thing I'd say, by the way, is our goal, this is a, a subtle point, but our goal isn't to get kids to code. It's to get schools to teach computer science. Right, which means uh, getting kids to code. Absolutely. It means about getting kids it's learning It's part of the education abilities. system. But it's getting it to be part of the education right. system. And in fact, it's a great question you ask because if you think about just learning to code, you know, learning a particular language, where do the angle brackets go? Where do the semicolons go? Mm -hmm. That sounds super nerdy and not fun at all. Right. But if you think about creating an app or creating a game or creating an animation, those are actually extremely creative things. And if you compare computer programming and computer science, it's halfway between math and the arts in terms of exercising the analytical fit skills, but also exercising the creative skills. And, and sort of, you know, when you go to math class, you're solving a theorem. You're proving something. You're answering a multiple choice question. You don't really go home and show mom or dad the thing you made right. uh, the way you do with art class. It's that maker's culture that you're actually exactly. making something. That could, you know, One of the reasons is the way it has been taught in the past has kept out lots of people. Women, for example. They, when they think they're making something or they're creating something of value, they tend to be more interested in it than if they're just moving around brackets, for example. Absolutely. I, I remember one of my – I love giving this example. When I learned to code – one of the sort of school homework problem sets was to write the code to calculate the Fibonacci sequence in math. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if anybody cares about the Fibonacci sequence, or maybe I offended well, some. Fibonacci does. But yeah, no. Fibonacci does. I'm sure there's some Fibonacci's math enthusiasts. Mom, maybe his sister and brother. <laughs> yeah, I probably just insulted it, about 10 people <laughs> there. They uh, are long dead, the Fibonacci's, but move along. Yeah, but, but you know, the homework you get in computer programming class should be to create something, to create mm -hmm. an app, to create right. anything that you can actually go home and show your mom and dad and friends to be proud about. And that is absolutely the way to get more kids excited about it, whether they're girls, whether they're boys. Let's talk about how it is taught, because that does keep, I mean, the diversity issue, which I want to touch on here, is is really severe, like getting the right people doing it. They certainly have a group of people, and it always ends up, as you know, here in Silicon Valley, is white men, white men, white men kind of thing, young white men who later get older and then hire more young white men. And so it creates a kind of industry that feels really close to most people. Would teaching it in schools not change that? Or do certain people just tend towards, I mean, the, they self-select. And then they, I have this thing that I say on almost every show, that Silicon Valley becomes a meritocracy versus a meritocracy, that it, it really does reflect what has come before it. So how do you, would that change it by putting it part of the core curriculum? First of all, I would say absolutely the lack of diversity in Silicon Valley reflects the lack of diversity in the education pipeline. Whether you look in the tech workforce, in university, or in high school classrooms, you see the exact same 
a four to one ratio of boys to girls or men to women mm-hmm. uh, and, and underrepresentation. It's four to of, one. It's four to one roughly mm-hmm. across all three. And it gets worse. Yeah. But I don't believe that this is because it's just about boys being wired to think one way and girls being wired to think no. another way. And in fact, in Code.org's courses at elementary school, we're at an almost balanced population. It's roughly 45% of our active coders are women. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, we see the women progressing farther than the boys just slightly in our online courses. And we're talking about 3 million girls all coding online. And, and the same thing with non-white. You know, I mean, just bringing in a more diverse group of people, not being taught this, where a lot of the opportunity is. Correct. Yeah, our, our courses, because they're in public schools and they're in, in many of the most urban schools in the country, they have an almost perfectly balanced uh, ethnic population. It's about 37% black and Hispanic kids. Again, 3 million black or Hispanic kids are learning to code on code.org because it's part of the curriculum in their school. So let's talk about what you're doing because one of the things that's, that we talked about is that most other countries, this is sort of just happens. It's part of their core curriculum. It's part of their core goals as a country. And ours does not. Ours does not. I, mean, I think people are consumed. I was at a really interesting event where the guy, it was a group of African-American students, and I think they were at church downtown in San Francisco. But it was a speaker, and he was saying, he said, how many of you kids download something from the internet? And everyone was like, who's this idiot? And like, we're making fun of him. Raised it. They all raised their hands. And and he said, how many of you people upload things to the Internet? And nobody did. And he said, well, you're all digital sharecroppers, which was a shocking thing to hear. And, and actually, it really hit these kids, these African-American kids. They were from um, public schools, and they didn't have these skills. And, and he was essentially saying, you're letting yourself be used by the Facebooks of the world, everybody, Googles of the world, and you're not getting something back, and you should be uploading things, which they don't do. They do they're just consumers of this information. I absolutely believe that learning how to create technology is part of participating in the in the revolution we're, we're dealing with. By the way, I would actually say this is a field where we are leading the world in. People assume that the Asians are teaching this in their schools. Chinese, just yeah. yeah, what the Chinese, Koreans. The, the Indians, and that's because you know, first of all, when you have a billion people in China, if even one percent of them are learning computer science, those are the ones that we want to hire to bring into this country. But they're more important in those countries. It's more valued. You can feel it in most of the education systems. In general, I would say education is more valued in a lot of international countries across all fields. Mm-hmm. But computer science education is, is something where the United States, I wouldn't say we're the farthest ahead, but we are definitely pushing the rest of the world. We at Code.org constantly get asked by folks in India saying, how can we bring this to India? So talk about how you do that. Let's talk a little bit about how you do that. So what are the tenets that you have? Core curriculum, that it's in every school. There's a cost that comes with this, which we'll talk about later. Core curriculum, just like spelling like everything else. And when does that start? So our view is, I don't compare it as much to spelling. The thing I compare to is something like biology class, where every high school has a biology class. You aren't required to take biology, but you have a chance to take it. And every elementary school teaches you basics like bees make honey Mm -hmm. and flowers turn into fruits. And that's not called biology. It's just part of third grade or second grade. Mm -hmm. Uh, And similarly, I think the basics of computer science should be integrated into elementary school just as part of fourth grade, fifth grade. Under science, under science. Right? Yeah, under science, just it's, throw it in there. I mean, there's lots of things you have in elementary school that aren't just math and writing. Uh, mm-hmm. And then by high school to have every school should offer at least one course and ideally an advanced course for the kids who want to go beyond. And would that be required? Do you feel like it should be a requirement just the way math is required, English is required? At code.org, we don't push for it to be required at the high school level. There's lots of uh, school districts that do want to make that happen and mm-hmm. we support them in doing it. 
Uh, but we aren't pushing that it should be required as a high school course. We, we are pushing that every school must offer it so that the students have the opportunity to learn it. So tell us where we are right now on that. We're, you're an evangelist, essentially, and you're, you do all kinds of things. You make these cool videos with Bill Gates saying, you should code, Mark Zuckerberg, you should code. Beyond that, what do you do? How do you get these schools? Because one is financial. It's really expensive. Two, people don't change. Schools don't change. I mean, they can hardly teach kids math and spelling at this point in some schools. How do you get that to happen? So we've moved from evangelizing, which we still continue to do, to actually making it really easy for the schools. And the two pieces that they need to make that easy, one is the curriculum, making the curriculum super easy to adopt for the teacher. And then the second is actually training their existing teaching right. staff. Teach, having people it. who know how to do this is Correct. hard, too, because uh, we and, don't and have... They, exactly. And they say, well, we can't afford to hire a software engineer to teach this. And we say, you know, you don't have a, a surgeon teaching your intro bio class either. You mm-hmm. have a teacher teaching it. Mm-hmm. And we'll train your existing teachers enough so that they can teach this. And we, aren't, we have now actually become the, one of the largest teacher training operations in the country. We're training... So how roughly, many teachers? How many? Uh, we've trained roughly 20,000 teachers, and we actually just committed to train 25,000 teachers over the next 12 months. And what months. does that mean? What does that entail, training teachers? It entails in-person training uh, in showing them how to teach our curriculum in their classrooms, whether it's at elementary, at middle, or a high school. So, And each of the teachers we train is basically then going back to And then they use your curriculum. Which in t- What is in that curriculum? All sorts of things from the basics of coding, starting from learning about things like for loops and if-then statements, mm-hmm. functions and variables, but also other non-coding things like how does the internet work, how does cybersecurity work, how, does, how is data encrypted. Uh, these are all things that are part of computer science and understanding the technology world around us, but beyond just learning to code. And how much does that cost? Like, what is the cost of something like this to change and add to that? Because there's, again, there's all sorts of competing ideas of how schools and education should change. And it's constantly debated. And again, schools are considered slow moving in that regard. There's other issues around schools that have nothing to do with coding that are problematic. Changing schools, I wouldn't say is easy. And I wouldn't uh, suggest that as, as a job to anybody. And when I got into this, everybody told me, this is crazy. You can't change schools. But I would say what's been amazing for us is that the schools are interested and willing, and it's a lot easier to get the education system to change when the teachers want it. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, more than half of all teachers in this country believe that st- students must be required to learn computer science. And when the teachers feel that, the education system as a whole is much easier to move along. And what about the parents? The parents are fully supportive. 90% of parents want schools to teach computer science. I would actually say just in the last two years, We've seen a complete flip in terms of views on this. All right, we'll talk about what happened when we get back. But first, are you an entrepreneur or startup looking for legal help with your financing, acquisition, or incorporation? If so, then you should consider checking out Walker Corporate Law. Walker Corporate Law is a different kind of law firm. Unlike traditional law firms, they have only lawyers with 10 to 25 years of experience, which means you're going to get personal attention from a senior lawyer, not a junior lawyer getting on the job training. They also encourage fixed fees because they believe that when lawyers bill by the hour, it words inefficiency. So check them out at walkercorporatelaw.com or you can call the founder Scott Walker at 415-979-9999. That's walkercorporatelaw.com or 415-979-9999. We're here with Hadi Partovi talking about coding and he is with code.org, which is trying to push schools to incorporate coding education into their curriculums. Uh, You know, the idea of STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and math, into our education has been a big deal for the Obama administration. Talk a little bit about, you've been working with them closely in a lot of uh, state and local organizations, correct? Yes. 
And one thing actually we've been messaging and increasingly you see politicians picking up on this is that STEM is a big deal. We're, we're behind as a country on mm -hmm. science, technology, engineering, and math. But if you look at the actual opportunities, the reason we're, we should be investing in STEM is because of economic jobs. growth and jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at the new jobs in STEM, according to the government's own Bureau of Labor Statistics, 71% uh, of all new STEM jobs are in computing. They're for computer programmers, data analysts, cybersecurity experts, etc. So it's not that we don't have a problem in STEM, but when 71% of the new jobs are in computing, really the problem is in so computer science. So what are the science. resistance and how has it changed? Because you said it's changed. I mean, obviously, techies have become sort of celebrities in a lot of ways. They have become largely because of their wealth, really. Um, they weren't rich. Nobody would – they'd go back to being just nerds to kick around. But they're rich. They're famous. They own companies that have huge impact. Talk about the changing attitude towards it because that has shifted rather dramatically. Yeah, so I think – First of all, I think techies are celebrities partly because of their wealth, but mm -hmm. also because of their impact mm -hmm. uh, and because of their consumer product impact. You know, if, for example, the CEOs of the largest banks are very wealthy, but I wouldn't consider them celebrities. Yeah, fair point. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I could even name not all that of them. Not that many are billionaires, but go ahead. There's a lot, you, you can't, like, walk in Silicon Valley without tripping over a billionaire, I that, feel. That's true, yeah. yeah. And, of course, being a billionaire helps to be yeah. a celebrity. But there's, yeah. there's many non-billionaires that have that impact that are very popular. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think... Every American seeing the growth of the tech industry has some degree of either an envy of those people or they just feel like they're being left behind or so on. There's not a single American that doesn't realize that technology is moving faster than we can keep up with mm -hmm. and creating all this opportunity. And the idea that our schools aren't even trying to keep our kids up to speed is something we all think that's a problem mm -hmm. that, that should be fixed. And, and I would say probably the biggest challenge we've had to fight against is this natural apathy of, oh, it's public schools and we can't fix it, we can't improve it. And what we've done in the last two and a half years is show that we actually can improve this, that we can take action. And now that schools, parents, students, teachers are all saying that we can add this to the curriculum, that has grown a sort of a so, life and motivation yeah, of First assess sort of the Obama administration in that regard in terms of pushing this. They've mentioned it a lot lately. State of the Union was all about this. Uh, there's been an initiative of computer science in schools that they're pushing there. You know, he was supposed to be the technology president. How do you assess – and how do you assess the candidates coming up with this issue? Because they seem mostly interested in building fences against immigrants, which, of course, are the people that founded the tech industry. Yeah, so on the current administration, they've been extremely supportive of computer science education. And I would say, actually, it's not just the White House. The Many of the governors th throughout the country are both all – Both Republican and Democrat. Yeah, both Republican and Democrat. The, the strongest state in favor of computer science is – Arkansas, where Asa Hutchinson made it part of his campaign platform. Uh, he, had, he made seven promises when he ran for governor, and one of them was computer science for all students. Mm -hmm. And it's also the only state in the country where every school already must teach computer science, and he's funded it. So this is not a Democrat or Republican issue. It's highly bipartisan. Uh, but this president and this White House is very supportive of it. There's a huge question of whether it's the White House should be telling our schools what to teach or not. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think most people would say that they shouldn't. But at least what the president has proposed is that whoever funds it or whoever well, does it, it should that. be teaching. Right? Yeah, There's just saying that this should be in our schools and nobody disagrees with that. Mm -hmm. And he's proposed funding to, from federal government to allow local schools to adopt it. So let's talk about the obstacles. And then I want to finish up talking about where you imagine our, us in 10 years of this. We'll talk about the obstacles. Money, one. Money, yeah, knowledge, the, what? Yeah, the biggest obstacle by far is the shortage of teachers 
who are skilled and enough to teach it. Well, we're short of uh, these people to do the job, so of course right. we'd be short of the teachers to right. teach it. But we don't need, like I said, we don't need the software engineers to become the teachers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our, our nation's colleges graduate teachers all the time, and the biology teachers and science teachers they graduate aren't ready to become surgeons or ready to, to win the Nobel Prize in chemistry or to work in pharmaceutical companies. They're teachers. And uh, we can have those same colleges graduate the average science teacher, math teacher, having one or two computer science courses under their belt to then also teach computer science. And and the real cost comes until the time that we have the new and incoming graduates having these courses under their belts. How do we train the current existing workforce? We have two million teachers in this country. How do we train enough of those teachers, enough so that every school offers a course? And then what? Money. And that, that has a cost to it. You right. know, and that cost is going to be at least hundreds of millions of dollars to train enough teachers to get there. What about moving other – you can only teach so many things. What should be removed from the curriculum? So I think at the high school level, you don't need to remove anything. At the school level, students will choose what they want to study. Mm-hmm. In fact, once you offer this, students flock to it. They want to learn it. I don't know if there's any one thing the school removes. Is there a trade-off of something? The thing I would look at it in terms of trading off is when you look at the younger grades where some of the things you study aren't optional, you just get taught it. Mm-hmm. One thing I look at is the, the calculator that's used to top math mm-hmm. is decades old. Kids are still using a really old programmable calculator to learn math. And many of those same instructional things could be taught using a computer. And today's computers are about as cheap as those calculators are. Yeah, a lot are. of kids do have computers in schools now. The kids have the computer, yeah. but the math class doesn't involve the computer mm-hmm. in the way that it, it, there's literally a piece in the SAT. You can't take an SAT without a calculator. And it's a $100, $150 device that every student in this entire country buys. And it, this is a device that hasn't gone faster and cheaper and smaller year after year. It's just it's a Texas Instruments calculator. Yeah, those. Yeah, why aren't we using any kind of computer and using computer programming to learn those same concepts. And then what else? Obviously, the attitude has changed. It's not a negative attitude towards this idea. Yeah, the, the other thing, by the way, in terms of removing, there's lots of courses around the country that teach how to browse the web mm-hmm. or how to type or mm-hmm. how to make a document. And these are important skills, but I don't think these are skills that most kids learn in school. I think they learn how to type on Snapchat or on Instagram. Right. You know, and then they yeah, come to school. Yeah, welcome to my kid. Exactly. They, they, you don't need a class to teach them how to do that right. from there. Sadly, he learned rather quickly. That's where <laughs> exactly. he spends all his time. These schools actually come to us and say, we want to upgrade our tech ed class. We want to get rid of these old things. How can we add more computer science into place of it? So let's talk about the future. We'll f- finish up with the future. Where do you imagine this going? What is the perfect storm for you of this happening? What would you like to see? Yourself, a required course that everybody takes and graduates with a proficiency? What kind of level of proficiency should people have? So I don't think of it at the high school level as being a required course. I think in elementary and middle school, it should just be part of school that you, not as a course, but just you know, an hour here, an hour there, and it's just kind of included in the curriculum so that everybody graduating from elementary and middle school understands what an algorithm is, understands the very basics of how the internet works, how to make a basic web page, how to make a basic program together, and that every single high school should offer at least an intro class, if not an advanced class, to learn sort of the high school level of this stuff. So that if you want to get a job in this space, you're not scared of it thinking it's only for this one select group that today's stereotypes emphasize. And how much money have you raised? What's the... You're we've, a nonprofit, but you... We're nonprofit. We've raised about $30 million, mm-hmm. uh, which is a lot of money for a young nonprofit. Mm-hmm. But if you consider that we now have partnerships with every single one of the largest school districts in the country, and we've had 100 million students try at least one hour of code, 
Uh, it's been an incredible. That's right. Hour of Code is your thing, right? Yeah, the Hour of Code has been this amazing gift that's kept giving to the mm-hmm. field. And that alone has been extremely efficient in terms of the money we've spent. Can you point to one school system that's done a great job? You said Arkansas for one. At the state level, Arkansas, if I had to pick a school district, Charles County in Maryland. Why is that? Uh, Charles County, just two years ago, they said we want to put this at every uh, grade band, elementary, middle, and high school. And they already are the only school district in the country where you can't go to a school in the district all of them teach computer science. And eventually they're going to want to prove results. And what would that be? What would that look like? Uh, we're actually doing studies in Charles County uh, to talk about exactly, there's a number of things we're looking at. What are the kids' and teachers' attitudes towards the field to see, do those kids grow up thinking maybe I might consider going to this field? And also just to learn how much do they learn? And also, does it impact their math or science scores? There's a lot of people who have this sort of belief, there's this gut feel that you know learning coding will also help you at learning math, mm-hmm. but that's something that we actually can study because now we have places can where Can you then is- translate it into entrepreneurship? I think everyone's going to have to be an entrepreneur going forward. I think the way we do jobs now is just not going to serve us well. We're not going to have I jobs. I totally agree. And in fact, a huge part of why I want schools to teach this isn't because kids should learn to become coders. It's because kids should learn to become creators. And when you take multiple choice tests and memorize things, mm-hmm. you don't learn to become a creator. No. Whereas when you learn how to code and do computer science, you actually do learn to become a creator. A maker, right? That's a the maker. big word all the Silicon Valley people use. Absolutely. Maker. Anyway, thank you so much, Hadi Partovi of Code.org. Where can you find Code.org and get involved if you're a school? Online at www.code.org. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hadi, it was great talking to you. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. Be the first to listen to future episodes or catch up on previous episodes, including some really fantastic interviews that Peter Kafka and I have done with Max Levshin, Katie Nolan, and Brian Chesky, just to name a few. You can find those interviews and more at recode.net slash decode. Don't miss our other podcasts, Recode Replay, and our newest show, Too Embarrassed to Ask. That's me and Lauren Good of The Verge answering all your burning questions about tech. You can find both at recode.net slash podcasts. And finally, this week, I'll be at Code Media, the conference run by Recode senior media editor Peter Kafka in Southern California. If I won't see you there, then check out recode.net for full coverage of the event. It's not quite as good as being there in person, but we'll have write-ups, videos, and podcasts from the stage, all on recode.net. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Recode Decode. Recode senior media editor Peter Kafka will be here on Thursday. I'll be back on Too Embarrassed to Ask this Friday with Lauren Good and here on Recode Decode on Monday with another great guest. Tune in then. This has been Recode Decode hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. For more hard-hitting interviews with insiders from the worlds of tech, media, and politics, subscribe to Recode Replay on iTunes. Featuring candid conversations with leading voices like AOL CEO Tim Armstrong, Goldman Sachs' CIO Marty Chavez, the team behind the hit TV show Empire, Shark Tank investor Mark Cuban, and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. They're all on Recode Replay.